This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquariumania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anand, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The marine aquarium and reef hobby continue to gain interest as marine conservation concerns also increase. My guest today is Alan Lucan, head of corals and marine organisms at Seagrass Farms, and he leads efforts on both fronts. Join us as Alan describes his journey on the high seas from Cincinnati and the Caribbean to coastal Carolina and corals at Seagrist. We'll be right back after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Alan Lucan, Head of Corals and Marine Organisms at Seagrass Farms. Alan, thanks again for being with us today. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to get to talk with you guys a little bit today. So I like to ask a lot of my guests some kind of personal history questions just so our listeners get a little better idea of where you're coming from and how you got engaged into the hobby. How did you first get interested in aquatic life? My family had fish tanks growing up. And uh, I always got to see them, but never really got to do anything with them when I was little until I finally got my first one when I was, oh, in like fifth or sixth grade. And once I got that first one, it's like an addiction. Uh, I got more and more as the years went on and just kept getting more interested in, in, in aquariums and in uh, aquatic life in general. So well, at the at the height of your uh, early frenzy, how many tanks do you think you had? Oh, a lot. Enough that I made my mom mad on more than one occasion with how many aquariums I was bringing home. I think at one point I was up to 13 scattered throughout a couple of rooms throughout the house. So it, it was quite the addiction. I did as many tanks as I could fit in any space I could find in the house. What kind of animals or fish were you keeping? I did a little bit of everything when I first started. Uh, my first tank was actually a community freshwater tank. I just went to the local fish store and just Walked down the, they had a big wall of tanks. I just walked down and started pointing fish and told them that's what I wanted. And then as I got more comfortable and, and did some more research, I branched out. I started doing saltwater and eventually it became all saltwater. And that kind of led me to where I am today. The only tank I have right now is, is a salt tank. And that's kind of where I, where I want to be and what I love. Now, I know when we were talking earlier, you mentioned kind of scuba diving in the Caribbean. How did that sort of factor in and what were some fun experiences from all that? Well, that was definitely a huge factor in what I decided to do with with my life. And, you know, my family was fortunate enough to go on different vacations to Florida, the Caribbean and uh, the Bahamas pretty often. And we would do a lot of snorkeling when I was smaller. And then 
as soon as I could get scuba certified, I did. So I was pretty immersed in seeing them in fish and, and aquatic life in their natural environment, which really led to, okay, you know, I see this for a couple of days out of the year. Well, I want to be able to see it, you know, the whole year. And so that kind of got me into really doing saltwater tanks. It got me incentive, I guess, to really push forward to do saltwater, to get into it and kind of make sure that I could see not just when I dive, but when I'm at home, have a little reminder, a little slice of the ocean. I know you also mentioned something about your first job at a, a pet store. Can you tell us kind of a little bit about that, how you actually got the job and some of your duties? Yeah, that's actually, uh, it's a funny story. I was in with my mom and this was when I was 15. I'm in with my mom and I'm just pointing again, pointing fish on a wall saying, I want this, I want that. And the bill got so high that, you know, of course my mom was not happy. I'm spending a hundred dollars or whatever it was on fish. And jokingly, she asked if they're hiring and, uh, if they could put me to work to pay for the fish. And and sure enough, they happened to be. I filled out an application right there, and I was an employee within, I think it was three days later, they called me, uh, and I came in. And for a long, long time, I was scrubbing algae, cleaning tanks, doing the dirty work, the kind of stuff that you'd expect a, a high schooler to do at a pet shop, and then managed to, to work my way through and ended up being an assistant manager there by the time I left. And, you know, at a pet shop, your responsibilities are everything, whether it's helping people or ordering fish or cleaning tanks. At one point or another, you do just about all of it. So what would you say were maybe the one or two or three most important lessons you got from uh, working at the shop? I think the, the biggest takeaway that, that I have from my time at the store was you never know everything. I came into that thinking, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty smart. I've kept fish. But I tell you, you start talking with other folks around the industry, you meet some of these people who've been in the industry for 50, 60 years and just the wealth of knowledge that they have, it's a humbling experience to talk with people who really, really know a lot. But even then, that's one of the first things they'll tell you is that no matter how much you think you know, there's always so much more to learn. And it was a nice experience for me to have so young. I think it's really paid off well here in the future. That's definitely very true. Very true. I learned that, as you mentioned, kind of the more you're into it, the more you're into anything, really, you realize how little you know or how much there is still to know. So let's take a quick speed trip back or up forward, I guess, from that to uh, undergrad. And you uh, went to Coastal Carolina University. I know you were involved with research kind of related to your interest. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. Yeah. So I got my undergrad in marine science from, from Coastal. And two of the biggest projects, we were fortunate that at Coastal, we did a lot of research. Uh, but two of the ones that I really kind of hang my hat on that were either primarily me helping with the research or doing the actual research. One study was on microplastics and how it affected phytoplankton and zooplankton and then on up into the food chain. And that was one that that project itself was probably the most in-depth project I've ever done. And I was very fortunate to be selected to be part of that research team. And while we didn't necessarily publish anything, I, I don't know, we had a couple of grad students that were using it for their own purposes, but... Uh, the information and the data that we, we collected actually went on to be used for a much larger project and, and a project that's been cited in different legislation for microbeads and, and how that's kind of going throughout uh, politics right now. So it was really interesting to be on kind of the ground floor of, of some of these research projects. And uh, then the other one that I got to do was probably my favorite from a, a topic standpoint. It was on invasive species. I did it on a species of Gracilaria algae and a species of marine shrimp and how they invaded, this was a historical look back at Boston Harbor, and how the invasion progressed over time, what led it to be such a efficient evasion for these two species, and what it means now, and, and how we can apply that information to other invasive species, other environments that are similar to Boston, and how we can 
prevent you know, more invasive species. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the microplastics? What exactly are there, just for folks that may not know? So we did. So microplastics, um, the easiest thing to kind of correlate them to is to face scrubs and soaps and things like that. When it's the, the exfoliating ones, they have very small plastic beads in them, which for a long time, you know, nobody really paid attention to until we actually started to see them in, in ocean water and sampling, whether it be water itself or somewhere throughout the food chain. So what we did was we were looking at phytoplankton and phytoplankton can actually ingest these microbeads and, and, and in turn, the zooplankton get it, anything, it eats the zooplankton, so on and so forth. Uh, and these microbeads rather can have some pretty serious impacts as they break down. Uh, and even when it, it did affect the growth rate of phytoplankton, did these microbeads. So there's a lot to it. And it's something that, like I said, it's, it's hard to even think about. You know, when I'm using soap, the last thing I think about is how does it get to the ocean? So it's a tough one to kind of fathom, but it is an extremely consequential uh, plastic and, and something that I'm glad has kind of been brought to light recently. Yeah, and I know there are definitely a lot more, as you mentioned, a lot more interest in that topic. So it's interesting that you worked on it, you know, back then and, and how hot it's become now. I'm going to move a little bit more, uh, a little further up, or actually, I guess, maybe a little bit more in detail on some of your work in uh, the kind of the public sector with aquarium zoos. So so I know you did some interning at the Newport Aquarium, and you also worked at the Nashville Zoo. What would you say were your favorite parts of each, and you know, what did you learn from each of those? Yeah, I think uh, I think my favorite parts, and this is for both, is, is the people. You know, the, you're working with people who have a passion for animals especially at the aquarium when it's almost entirely aquatics, you know, the, the people there, the knowledge that gets just passed throughout is invaluable. You know, I wouldn't trade either experience for the world. You know, I learned more as an intern and then uh, at Nashville as an employee than I ever thought I would. You know, at Newport, I focused a lot on aquatics. I did work with some birds. I was able to work with the African blackfoot penguins, which was a really neat experience. But, you know, everything that you learn and you, and you apply it on a much larger scale than you would, say, a home aquarium, except for, you know, a handful of us who happen to have massive aquariums. But it's a unique and extremely uh, educational experience for me. And, and the same can be said of Nashville. Now, now in, at the zoo I, in Nashville, I did more with reptiles, crocodilians and the like. But it was still, it was a great experience. It was really interesting to see the different techniques and the different ways of caring for these animals that you see in a public facility side, as opposed to what's available or what's common practice on the hobby side. So I'm going to kind of segue us over into your current position and some of the work you are doing now. And we'll talk a little bit more about corals and the hobby. What made you decide to kind of leave Nashville and, and go back into the hobby? What were some of the drivers for all that? Well, I think what it was is, you know, at the zoo, I would find myself looking at fish and going, yeah, that's a really great fish. Somebody would pay a lot of money for that. You know, there's, I spent eight years at the retail store. So there was kind of that ingrained, you know, fish are not just exhibit animals. They, they could be so much more. So I really wanted to get back into the hobby side. I really like the, the idea of, you know, people keep an aquarium and being able to support them in any way I can. And I thought Seagrass was just a great opportunity for that. You know, I worked with Seagrass when I was uh, at the pet store. We would uh, buy from every week. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of on a whim. I applied for actually an inside sales job and fortunately got it. And then within about two weeks, they decided that uh, I should be moved around. And then uh, I ended up getting moved around to the Marine Department. And that's where I am now. 
So yeah, kind of a cool dream for you and definitely in a great position. We're definitely happy you're here in Florida and working with Seagrist. So tell us a little bit about your steps through your current position. I think you said you were a coral buyer and then now you're a marine project and quality overseer. Can you talk about each of those and what specific duties are entailed with them? Certainly. Yeah. So everyone at Seagrass wears multiple hats. So it's tough to, when people ask for our title, it's tough to give them one because we all have four or five. So two of my biggest, um, the coral buyer, I still do that. And then marine quality and project overseer. So for coral buying, it's exactly what it sounds like. You know, we have to import corals from all over the world. We have to be able to coordinate that with more people than, than you can imagine. There's brokers, there's the obvious suppliers, there's transshippers and, and shippers. And there's a lot that goes into it. You know, that it's something that I never realized. I didn't realize all the legalities that went into it until I started here at Seagrist. And as I was being trained and started to learn the different nuances of it, it, it sounds very simple. You know, I spend the company's money on corals and that's it. But there is a lot of, a lot of work that goes into it. A lot of pairing for a shipment. It takes us about two weeks uh, to get a shipment prepared before we can actually start getting it bagged up and sent our way. So it is a pretty in-depth. And then the quality and project overseeing, that is the simplest way to put it is a project and quality manager for our saltwater department. Basically what I do is every fish that comes in, we have to clear it. So we have to give it the okay. That's one of my biggest responsibilities. And then before that fish goes out, we kind of have a similar process. So uh, once it's in, we have an acclimation section of our saltwater department and that's where we do our first check and then once it gets moved over into a section where it'll actually go on our list it's going to get checked again and both of those are by myself and i've got a couple other guys that work alongside me and then project manager is exactly what it sounds like any project that we have to, to get done in saltwater i'm a part of and it's it's awesome to be a part of things as we continue to grow this department at seagrist and as we continue to make improvements to, to the betterment of the hobby Well, that's great. And uh, before we take a quick break, I'm going to ask you one general question and then we'll get a little bit more into some specifics on. But what's your uh, feedback? And you guys are involved, obviously, on the uh, sales side and have a pretty good sense of that. What's your uh, thoughts on the growth in the marine reef and aquarium hobby uh, relative to maybe, you know, the past five or 10 years? How is it doing? I think it's taken off. I think we're at a point now where as better technology and equipment are available to people at uh, better prices and they're more accessible, people want to get involved. Everybody wants a, a reef tank. Nobody looks at a reef tank and says, ah, that's okay. So once people realize it's not terribly difficult to actually get into this hobby, they do. And I think that's kind of happening here, especially over the past couple of years. It seems to have really started picking up and really becoming a popularity in the U.S. Well, you know what? We're going to take a quick break and we'll definitely come back. So let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion of corals in the marine hobby and the work at Seagrass with my guest, Alan Lucan after these messages from our sponsors. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. He was malnourished and emaciated. Constant scratching and just being unpleasant. He was shedding excessively. He was losing his fur. Franklin was rescued from the streets of Los Angeles. Bear was a rescue from the same shelter in Kansas City, Missouri that I got J.J. the Terrier. I found his raw meat diet, which is raw meat, eggs, 
rice, and Dinovite and Lico Chops. It is Omega-3 supplement on Dinovite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. I've got my ground beef, the Dinovite, and I just mix it all together with the eggs and the shells. Franklin, he's thriving. His coat is soft and shiny. He's shedding much less. They're much happier. Their coats are better. Their behavior, especially their behavior, is better. How do you feed your shelter dog to derive a great attitude? Start that little pet off right. 859-428-1000. 859-428-1000. Just go to Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Alan Lucan, the coral and marine life guru at Seagrass Farms. So we talked a little bit about your kind of personal history and, and started talking about how you got into Seagrass and some of the work you've been doing. Can you maybe give us some of Seagrass Farms and your philosophy and thought on uh, collection from the wild versus aquaculture specimens? Absolutely. And uh, it's nice that Seagrass and, and my philosophies and, and what we believe are in line with each other. So it's really one philosophy and it's wild collection is still needed. You know, people talk about aquaculture and mariculture all the time, and that is extremely important. The steps we have taken in the aquaculture realm here of the past oh, two years or so have been unbelievable. You know, five years ago, it was hard to find anything aquaculture in the marine department. And now there's a significant amount of, of fish and invertebrates that are aquaculture. And mariculture is immensely important, whether it be for this industry or for reef restoration, uh, mariculture is massively important. But wild sustainable collection always kind of gets kicked out and always looked at a bad light. But the important part of wild sustainable collection is that when, when local economies and, and communities rely on collecting the corals themselves, it's actually an incentive to help them grow reefs. So if you think about it, if they went through and collected all the fish and all the corals and everything and just kind of did it in a destructive manner, a not sustainable manner, then as soon as everything's gone, they're going to have to figure out some other way to bring in money. So these communities have figured out ways to help grow the reefs enough that not only are they growing the reefs in general, but they're growing them enough that they can still sustainably collect. Uh, And that way they have one income. They don't have to worry about what am I going to be doing for food or for money for the next six months? And it's extremely important uh, as the preservation to our reefs into this hobby. I got a follow-up question, and I know you guys are probably much more um, in the loop on all this, but I heard recently um, about the closing in Hawaii of collection. What's kind of your take on that, and how is that affecting the hobby? Maybe explain it a little bit, too, for folks that aren't aware of it. For sure, for sure. So what's going on in Hawaii right now, uh, and this is speaking strictly for fish, there's not uh, coral or, or invert collection out of Hawaii, uh, at least as far as I know. But for fish, what is happening is a, a bill is passed that has made it illegal to fish with certain nets. And now these nets are small net size nets. So if you think about the, the mesh size, these are small. The little holes in the net are less than two inches, which is great for aquarium fish because most of the fish that we catch are relatively small. And in some places in Hawaii now, and this is an update that's come over the past month or there about uh, it's actually illegal entirely to fish. So everywhere else, it's legal to fish with two-inch net or bigger right now. But the problem with that is if you think about aquarium fish, of course, the small ones are going to get right through. And that's kind of a given. But for even for the larger fish, the yellow tangs, the cold tangs, a two-inch net does a great disservice to the fish because it more than just catching the fish, 
it's actually going to gill the fish, which is when the fish gets caught on the net. So these fish are just small enough that they can somewhat fit through, or at least the front halves of their bodies can fit through, but perhaps not the back half. Uh, so they're getting caught in the net, which is much, much more detrimental to the fish. Now, fortunately, we have some great collectors out there that are doing everything possible to avoid any sort of uh, issues with the fish. And the fish that we're still getting from Hawaii right now, or from our folks that are able to get fish or in and around Hawaii, I should say, are coming in with just fine health. So it's it's definitely something that is worrisome for the hobby. It could mean if it becomes completely illegal to fish in Hawaii, we think the focus will turn to other fisheries, which is not good because Hawaii is hands down the most well-managed fishery, at least for this industry, in the United States and perhaps the world. So there's a lot of data to back up what we're doing is just sustainable and even actually helping many of the fish populations. But uh, unfortunately, some of our opposition doesn't see it that way. You mentioned corals as uh, you know not being at least regulated in the same way as a fish. Obviously, collection is different. How, how would you determine sustainability when talking about corals? And what are some of kind of the challenges with coral importation or collection? It's tough. This is a, a battle that We've done a lot of good things on, we as in the industry. I think the CITES regulation, which what CITES is, is a uh, environmental regulation agreement amongst, I don't know how many countries, but just about every country you can imagine has agreed to CITES. And that does a great job of regulating the importation and exportation of corals, which has done just phenomenal things for the environment. It's keeping people from just over-harvesting reefs. It's keeping people from just going in, destroying a reef and moving on. And I think that's kind of one of the ways to really measure sustainability of coral collection because it is difficult. But I think when you you look at the overall reef health itself, uh, if the reefs that these corals are being collected from are still healthy, uh, then it's a sustainable manner. Uh, It's so well regulated with CITES that uh, it's extremely difficult to overcollect. Now, there are certainly still folks that will try to go around it. But U.S. Fish and Wildlife, at least here in the United States, does an outstanding job of making sure that that doesn't come to the U.S. Uh, of making sure that when they figure it out, they know who to go to, they know who to shut down, and, and they do a wonderful job of that. Let's go uh, into some of the coral hobby questions. What species of corals would you say are your favorite? And yeah, if you can maybe describe them a little bit for uh, folks to give them a visual image of these. For sure. Yeah. They're going to sound basic, but I like the, the green star polyp. is hands down my favorite coral. It's actually a joke around here, around Seagrass, with how much I like green star polyp. I order it all the time. I've got it in my own tank. And for those of you who have never seen it, it's a small polyp. It's, it's very short. kind of looks like grass when you get a nice big piece going over a rock. It's bright, bright green, and it's just a really sharp-looking piece and can add to in my opinion, at least, can add to any tank. And then I would say my second favorite, and, and this is, I think I share a lot of people with this one, is uh, Stylophora pistolata, which is, looks a lot like Acropora, so a lot like uh, SPS coral, but it, it's the polyps come out and are out constantly, and it's all over the skeleton. So it kind of looks like a fluffy SPS-type coral, which I think is really neat because you get the, the big skeleton of the, of the SPS, the, the nice like branching look, but you also get a lot of movement in the branches themselves, which I think is kind of the best of both worlds. And the, and the colors you can get, uh, any color you can get, you name it. You know, there's purples, greens, reds, everything you can imagine. And I think that's another, at least for me, that's another big appeal to Stylophora. Are there corals that you would consider to be either too difficult to raise and or maybe not sustainable and so you guys don't try to get them in? Well, I think on the sustainable side of things, we do a great job. We, again, this is 
speaking for the industry, we do a great job of if a species is not sustainable, you know, we won't import it. And more than likely, it's on the Endangered Species Act. I think great examples of that are when we look in the Caribbean. There's no stony coral out of Florida, the Caribbean. And that's something that I think is great. There's some beautiful stony corals in that area. But when you look at uh, Acropora palmata or Acropora cervicornis, you know, it as much as I would love to have that in my tank, I think the focus is right now on restoring those reefs. Now, maybe in 50 years, that'll change. I don't know. But I would say as far as the importation and sustainability, most of the ones that are available to us from different suppliers and collectors are sustainably collected and, and are still extremely beneficial for the hobby. Now, on keeping them in your, your home tank, there's definitely ones that are more difficult. You know, corals themselves are, depending on your setup, are, are relatively easy, you know, especially some of the beginner ones like the star polyps, are, are, they're easy. But when you start getting into the more advanced, we'll say, corals, it just takes more time and attention and a little bit of research. You know, you got to know what you're getting into. Once you figure out what the coral is and, and what its care requirements really are, there's been enough people out there that have been successful with so many different types of corals that we have a pretty good understanding of care requirements for corals. There's certainly still some that are kind of uh, up in the air, but it just comes down to making sure you as a hobbyist do your research and, and know what you're getting into and know that you have the ability and the time to care for these corals. So I'm sure there's a million answers to this question and uh, probably different ways you can get really, really detailed. But in general, if someone is approaching you for advice and they have maybe little or no experience with setting up a reef tank, what would be some of your general guidelines and considerations for them in trying to set this up? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. There are a million different ways to answer this question and then everybody's going to have a different answer for you. I would say my general philosophies when setting up a tank and when discussing it with other folks is make sure you do your research beforehand. To me, that's hands down the most important part. And it's simply because, again, you really don't know everything that's going to happen with your tank. I have a 25-gallon cube that I set up, and so many different things have happened one way or another with it that there is no chance that if I wouldn't have done at least some research beforehand that I'd still have it today. Good and bad. You know, there's times that I have corals that grow just immensely, and I have no idea why. There's times when I get a massive algae outbreak, and I, again, have no idea why. But the more research you can do beforehand, the better. It's going to set you up for much more success in the long term. It's going to make dealing with headaches and potentially when you do things right, it's going to be able to make sure that you can repeat the successes that you have. So maybe a real quick question on size. Everyone always kind of has different opinions. What's your opinion on what's a good starter size and maybe configuration for a reef tank? Yeah, everyone does have a different opinion on this. Personally, I like uh, the all-in-one kits, and most of those come in about 20 to 30 gallons. I think that's a great starter size. It's a manageable amount of water. It's still enough water that you're able to control the parameters better. If you get a tank that's too small, let's say you get like a 6 or a 10-gallon tank, controlling those water parameters and keeping them stable is not easy. You know, you think about doing a water change in a 10-gallon tank, you do a 5-gallon water change, all of a sudden you do a 50% water change, you're going to throw your parameters, maybe not for the worst, but a change in water parameters can create problems, even if it's an improvement. Uh, if it's too quickly, it can create problems. And then on a large scale, A, a large scale is going to take up a lot of space and it's going to require a lot of resources and time. And most large tanks, there are a few companies out there that do an all-in-one, but most large tanks, you're putting together piece by piece, essentially. So you're getting the tank, you're getting the light, you're getting the sump, you're getting the, anything else you want, you got to piece it together, which is possible, don't get me wrong, but it's definitely difficult. And it does require a little bit more attention to 
what you're buying, what you're setting up. And that's why I think, you know, some of these companies have come out with great size between 20 and about 30 to 40 gallon tanks that just do a wonder. They're everything you could ever need. They're a nice size tank for water volume. And you can do many, many fish in a tank that size that'll get you the same effect as some of these massive reef tanks you see. I know there are always considerations with water quality and even coral on coral uh, aggression or interactions. Again, I know there's a lot of answers to some of these, but can you maybe give us a couple of real quick highlights with regard to water quality and lighting and, and also coral on coral type interactions? For sure. Yeah. You know, water quality is a huge player when it comes to coral, more so than perhaps with fish and and, uh, even some invertebrates. Everybody's got a different opinion of what the most important aspects of water quality are. For me, I think it's alkalinity. I think the stability of your water is probably the most important aspect of keeping corals alive. But if you ask somebody else, they'll tell you it's nitrates, calcium, magnesium, and it's all important. (laughs) There's no aspect of water quality when it comes to corals that are not important. And my overall message is to make sure that you're on top of your water quality, you know your water quality, and at least in some regards stays relatively stable or has stable ups and downs that you know why it's happening or are controlling. And with regard to um, some of the kind of coral on coral type things, maybe any quick thoughts? Oh yeah, this one is perhaps more interesting because it's something you don't really think about at first because you maybe don't have corals that are going to be anywhere near each other. But there's definitely some, we'll call it fighting that goes on between corals. They have the ability to sting and some of them have sweeper tentacles that can reach for, you know, a foot to two foot beyond the skeleton, which is, if you think about it, just insane because that's basically the size of some tanks. So there's definitely research that needs to be done on placing corals for not just the water parameters, flow, lighting, and the like, but also for, is this coral going to bother anything around it? Or is this coral going to be susceptible to anything bothering it? Now, what are some uh, inverts and maybe some kind of reef-friendly fish that would be good for a a setup? I think when you look at it, the invert side of things, uh, your big focuses are always a cleanup crew. Uh, And what cleanup crew is, is simply uh, excess food and algae. You know, if you got a tank and odds are if it's your first time and you got a couple of clownfish in there or something like it, you're probably going to overfeed. I still overfeed my tank from time to time. It just kind of happens. So you want to have something, some sort of control for that. That's not you having to go in and siphon it out the food. So that's what, what cleanup crews are great for. And, and algae outbreaks, nobody likes to deal with algae, especially when you have corals because you don't want to bother the coral, but you still want to get the algae out. So having a cleanup crew, hermit crabs and snails, particularly like astrea snails, do a wonderful job of going around, getting to the places that are hard for us to reach and making sure that everything is clean and tidy. And as far as fish, there are a ton of options, no matter what size your tank is. Uh, you know, I hear a lot that on nanotanks, people will tell you that there's only a handful of types of fish. And, and there's times I'll just tell them straight to your face, they're dead wrong. There are an immense amount of fish that can go in reef tanks. Yes, you absolutely have to make sure that it is not an obligate coral of ore. Uh, it doesn't just eat corals, or it's not going to be detrimental to anything else, you know, invert-wise in your tank, and it's going to get along with everybody. But, that, you know, that's the kind of research you would do, regardless if you had corals or not, for the most part. So the, no matter what size tank you have, there are a ton of options for fish. You know, your favorites are always going to be the clownfishes, the tangs, even some of the wrasses that are reef-safe. Those are beautiful fish, big, colorful fish. But there's a lot of really unique fish, and I think that's uh, something that's really come to light here in the past year or so. I've seen a lot of people with crazy pipe fish in their tank, seahorses of colors I've never seen before, filefish and butterfly fish in a reef tank, which a long time wasn't possible. At least that's what we thought. So, you know, as we get more involved and more research is done with what can actually survive and thrive and grow with corals, 
the list just gets longer and longer. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the Coral Conservation Initiative? Uh, you mentioned that when we were talking a while back. Yeah, absolutely. So that is uh, an initiative that we've started here at Seagrass Farms. And essentially what we're trying to do is get the hobby and more involved with coral conservation and reef restoration. What we're trying to do is people with aquariums see their aquariums and they look great, but they may not be involved with uh, the wild environments or they may want to be, but just don't know how to go about it. So what we're doing is we're building a database and it's going to have reef restoration and conservation organizations from all over the world that you can quickly get involved, help with, donate to, however it is that you want to work with them. And we're going to do everything we can to raise awareness about different areas that might need our help, areas that are thriving and doing well, and why areas are thriving, why these areas are doing so great, and, and what is being done currently to help reefs that need our help. You know, there's a lot of them all over the world for one reason or another. And, you know, we want to make sure that people are aware of it, and we want to make sure people understand what's being done to help those reefs and bring them back. That is uh, amazing, and you guys are doing some great stuff at Seagrass, and uh, I know that they're uh, really probably happy and thrilled that you've been there and working with them on all these issues. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I, I want to thank you again, Alan, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making the show possible. Alan, did you have any final words of wisdom or info that you would want to impart upon our listeners? I think my words of wisdom are always just make sure you do your research. If you've got a tank, there's always more that can be learned. And if you don't have a tank, get one, do some research, and learn about fish. Great, great advice. Thanks again. Please be sure to check out Alan's web links, which will be found on his Aquarium Mania guest page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. And if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please be sure to check out Seagrass Farms on the websites and uh, links that are provided by Alan and visit your local aquarium stores. Keep your tanks clean and your animals healthy. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.